The Army may operate primarily on the ground, but it relies on space communications to maintain freedom of movement and situational awareness, and to guard against known and emerging missile threats. At the Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I got an update from the commander of the Army's Space and Missile Defense Command, Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler. I'm going to get right into it. Ground-based space integration and interdiction. And you have a 2030 vision for all of that. What is it all about? I do. So as we look at space as a warfighting domain, and we recognize that in addition to air, land, sea, cyber, spaces, just as an equal warfighting domain as all the traditional domains uh, that we're familiar with, we have got to make sure we recognize what the adversary can do through and in space uh, to disrupt our ability to move, shoot, and communicate. We have to be able to counter that. And so any space interdiction capabilities that we have to protect our freedom to maneuver, our ability to communicate, and our ability to shoot uh, is, is right number one in my job jar. And then as, a, as the Army Service Component Commander to support U.S. Space Command and General Jim Dickinson, we make sure that I provide him trained and ready forces to be able to do exactly that. And the... Space assets that the Army relies on are not all Army-owned and operated. I mean, you rely on Space Force, Air Force, even commercial satellites. And so what's the breakdown? And does the Army have its own space assets for its own purposes, it, maybe launched by somebody else? No, it sure does. So the, we, have, uh, we have Army space assets. So we have the 1st Space Brigade in Colorado Springs. And 1st uh, Space Brigade has uh, three battalions. And we have, you know, we have space assets in... I like to say 10 time zones, 22 different locations. And they provide support to Space Command as well as Central Command and European Command. And, and those are Army space assets. Those are, those are FA-40s. Those are space officers or space professionals. And then the enlisted force, though not a space MOS, we draw heavily from Signal Corps, military intelligence, and air defense. And they do everything from... Uh, space control operations to theater missile warning. So anytime that there's any ballistic missile launch, they provide the early warning, the missile warning into a particular theater. And then we have our missile defense batteries, MDBs as we call them, and they are radar operators for our five strategic radars that support the ground-based mid-course defense system that defends North America from ICBM attack from North Korea or Iran. Right, that's an important point because the Army has its needs for satellite comms to guide your own munitions and to communicate on the ground and maneuver and, and the freedom to operate, as you mentioned. But that defensive operation against incoming missiles, that also has a great reliance on space. It, it sure does, whether, it, whether it's the uh, architecture in space to provide us with that uh, early warning and then provide that information to our sensors that are networked globally. The Missile Defense Agency provides us with that capability that our operators uh, operate on. And then uh, the communications aspect of it, again, global communications, is all part of that global missile defense architecture that Space and Missile Defense Command soldiers operate uh, from Colorado Springs as well as our operators at Fort Greeley, Alaska with the interceptor field. And just give us a sense to the extent that you can of what's going on up there, because all these nations now have space assets that didn't have them 40, 50 years ago. We know China has offensive capabilities in space. Is it kind of a detente right now? No one's, We're all probing one another and trying to understand one another, but not taking lethal or destructive types of actions? 
Yeah, we recognize that the adversaries are contesting us in space. Absolutely. And so part of General Dickinson's mission, his big mission, is to make sure that the U.S. military has the opportunity to operate in through and to space as the, as the combatant command for space. His area of responsibility is 100 kilometers and above the surface of the earth. We provide him with, as the Army component, we provide him with our Army capabilities to do that. And is it possible to see other satellites? I mean, most satellites are designed to send information down, not so much between one another unless it's a network of satellites. But I guess I'm asking about the ability of one satellite to harm another one. Is that something you can see or be aware of? Or We're, we're, we... we're always concerned with adversaries on orbit capabilities. Uh, and again, part of, a, part of a Spacecom's mission is to make sure that our on-orbit capabilities stay defended. And you mentioned, you know, can we see satellites? Part of our mission that I have with those strategic missile defense radars so a missile defense radar that can see an incoming ballistic missile is also not too bad at being able to provide space domain awareness and look at those objects that are in space. And so that's a unique part of our job is we're able to provide the missile defense, uh, you know, the sensors to provide you know, missile defense uh, sensing capabilities as well as space domain awareness capabilities. And maybe talk more about the triad, the special operations and cyber command partnership that you have. Yeah, it's just a, to me, it's a natural extension of combined arms operations. And when you read the Army's uh, FM 3.0 now that just got published about multi-domain operations, we've got a, you know, the, the traditional domains of air, land, sea, then the newer ones of cyber and space uh, have got to be treated just exactly the same as as our other domains. And so the the requirement to integrate our capabilities for the maneuver commander or the joint force commander are critical. And that, that stems everywhere from, from just the planning before we're executing a mission or campaign all the way up through the command and control of how we're going to do it and then through the execution and just really normalizing what our three commands do and, and be able to provide that triad capability to a combat commander is, uh, is important. We're speaking with Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler. He's commander of Space and Missile Defense Command. And you've got another unit called the Multi-Domain Effects Battalion. What is that and how does it work? And what does it shoot? Sure, Tom. So the Multi-Domain Effects Battalion, not exactly mine. That They work for the Multi-Domain Task Force, so the new uh, MDTFs that the Army stood up, one, two, and three, two in Indo-PACOM and one in Europe. Subordinate to the multi-domain task force is the multi-domain effects battalion. And then underneath that is my space control companies. And so we provide space control capabilities to that multi-domain task force. So really at the, from the operational and tactical level, space control capabilities provided to the Army service component commander, whether that's the user pack commander, user commander, or RSENT, or, or if needed, even uh, possible up to... Uh, General Dickinson and the Spacecom commander if the command relationship uh, shook out that way. Yeah, this is a complicated org chart you've outlined. You spend a lot of time on conference calls? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm actually privileged to be the Army Service Component Commander to three combatant commands, so Spacecom, as we talked about, but also I'm Admiral Richards, Army Service Component Commander for STRATCOM, and then I support NORTHCOM with the 100th GMD, the Ground-Based Mid-Course Defense Brigade that does all of our homeland missile defense. Uh, so, so at any given day, I answer to those three combat commanders. I'm General McConville's Air and Missile Defense Enterprise Integrator as sure. senior Army guy. So those, those four COCOMs are the three COCOMs and, uh, and General McConville. At any given day, I, I'm answering a phone or VTC or, or an email to and any one of them. with respect to the missiles that the Army uses as offensive weapons of our own, is that part of 
your command, or is that somewhere else? It, it's it's uh, it's part of what we approach in when we talk about integrated air and missile defense. So many times people think of integrated air and missile defense as just the defensive part, the Patriots and the Thads that are out there. But the offensive part of that is also important. It's much better to try to hit that thing while it's still on the ground, if it's in a silo, on the runway, or on a tell, than letting it get off. You know, if it, if it gets off the ground and launches, of course, we have our active defense capabilities to get after it. But the attack ops piece, hypersonic weapons, you know, the Air Force can, uh, can use um, attack ops on it, all part of the integrated air missile defense, the offensive-defensive integration. And so you've got a really big research operation going on to make sure that all that is up to date, especially in the hypersonics. It's an old area, but it's always being reinvented, it sounds like. It is, and my tech center at Space and Missile Defense Command there in Huntsville uh, is heavily partnered with the RICTO, the Rapid Critical Capabilities Technology Office, in in the work that they're doing for hypersonics as well as with directed energy. So that's the unique part, too, of Space and Missile Defense Command. I have that operational forces that we talked about for Space Brigade and the 100th GMD, but I also have a tech center that does that early research and development, and then I have a center of excellence, which does everything from concept development to writing requirements to a schoolhouse that helps train all of our space operators. Yeah, because what we've learned is that the intelligence and capabilities of U.S. weapons is not just a academic concept. In Ukraine, we've seen how important it can be for even a small nation that didn't have that capability. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we're observing and in, in, in grab, grabbing our observations of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, obviously we're bringing that back into our units and, and we're helping share those observations. You can see how the things perform in real life in a contested environment, which hasn't always been the case. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of, a, if I go back in my history a little bit, when I deployed to Israel during Desert Storm, the first time we had ever used Patriot in an anti-ballistic missile role, we hadn't done a whole lot of testing with it, hadn't headed out in the range very much, but, you know, industry ramped up. We got, we got the anti-ballistic missile Patriot uh, missiles into Israel put them on the launchers, and then we're able to see the effects against uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, scuds as they were coming in. Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler is commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command, speaking with me at the AUSA conference. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. 
And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.